Oh, hey, this is Dr. Greg, and welcome to Here's What I Can Say. This is a podcast dedicated to teaching important concepts in medicine, answering your questions, and discussing news in the world of healthcare. A little background on me I am a medical doctor, I received my MD in 2019. I'm also a published researcher. I've co-authored two papers and multiple abstracts and posters presented at some conferences and still active in the research community. Um, Depending on when you talk to me will vary on how much involvement I have in research at that time. So let's get into some of the treatments today. So some of the more infamous treatments include hydroxychloroquine, and azithromycin. Um, Remdesivir is especially important in the news, Um, but there's a handful of things that I'll talk about in a little bit of detail, Um, but I will gloss over some details, but if you're curious about them, feel free to email me at here's what I can say at gmail.com, and anytime you think I've got something wrong or need further clarification, feel free to reach out and we can talk about it. So first one we can talk about is hydroxychloroquine. This is the one that Donald Trump was touting in the news uh, pretty early on, and some people were accidentally poisoning themselves by taking what they thought was some form of that drug. So hydroxychloroquine is a compound related to quinine. Quinine was discovered to have medical benefits way back in 1638 when the Countess Cinchona of Peru got malaria, and she was treated with the tree bark from what is now called the Cinchona tree. The bark itself was interestingly called Jesuit's powder, and eventually the chemical derivatives were finally approved in 1955. The hydroxychloroquine is related to the compound chloroquine with, unsurprisingly, an additional hydroxyl group. This is done by a chemical process called hydroxylation that adds a oxygen and hydrogen group to one of the carbon molecules of the compound. In this case, it made it less toxic, but similarly effective for some of the things that it is used for. The way that hydroxychloroquine works in the immune system is that it decreases T-cell activation. T-cell activation pathways that are overly active in autoimmune diseases such as lupus are are often needing to be attenuated, which can happen when patients take hydroxychloroquine. I've personally met multiple people taking hydroxychloroquine and they feel substantially better when they take it. There's also some data to show that it can block T-cell calcium channel activity. Um, This was most recently published in a journal um, without any hint of irony that just called blood. So uh, why why is a drug that affects the immune system by decreasing its activity uh, relevant in this situation. Um, so there were some some researchers and physicians in Wuhan, China, who had noticed that their patients who had SLE 
and were on hydroxychloroquine, they didn't seem to get sick compared to people who were not. And it just seemed like some kind of anomaly in the data. In a paper published in March of 2020, this was an in vitro study, which means it was a cellular study. Um, It showed that treatment with hydroxychloroquine decreased viral entry into cells, seeming to have modified a receptor that the coronavirus would use. Um, And then the secondary benefit of taking hydroxychloroquine is that because it decreases immune activation, it can decrease the severity of a condition related to severe coronavirus infection called cytokine storm. A cytokine storm kind of happens when the immune system is, is overly active and releasing too much of its active components, which then cause a state of distress and um, can put you at risk for, for continued harm and or death. Um, and so decreasing activity of the immune system has some um, sort of intuitive sense. However, there are other ways that you can achieve this. You don't have to use hydroxychloroquine. Um, There's plenty of other medications that you can use to decrease immune system activity to stop the cytokine storm. There were also studies in the past that showed chloroquine, um, several in 2020 or 2010, excuse me, that showed that that it could possibly prevent influenza infection. They did a trial and it unfortunately didn't work. However, it seemed to work in these in vitro studies, much like the one that showed that it that hydroxychloroquine would would block coronavirus from entering host cells. It seemed to do the same for the flu, but then they did human studies and it showed no efficacy. This kind of goes into or leads into a good discussion on what I call biological plausibility. So when we talk about biological plausibility, um, or maybe more specifically me, is before you even test a treatment or test a hypothesis, the hypothesis has to have some reasonable explanation. Um, so this this would be, yeah, for some reason, people didn't get sick. That seems curious. And then you see in the past that in cell cultures, it seemed to be able to block some viruses from entering cells. So maybe there's something going on there. If you keep it from entering cells, the immune system can pick it up and clear the infection, and then you have a much less severe infection. However, when you take, you can try to study something that's biologically implausible and get all kinds of randomness in the data. So you take something like, uh, not to knock them, but unfortunately, something like cupping. Cupping is the practice of using those cups and heating them up and then pulling the skin at the surface. There's, I know I'm going to miss a lot of the benefits that they tout, but essentially, I think the thought is that it pulls blood and allows blood to get into the tissues better. Um, but really, all you're doing is giving someone a hickey. So the just bursting of capillaries on the superficial tissues, while it may feel kind of relaxing, um, there's not a 
significant biological plausibility of that treatment. So someone who's doing a trial of the efficacy of cupping for some kind of condition um, could potentially find something in the data of their trial. However, it's difficult to make any sense of it because there's no biological plausibility. So why did that treatment seem to work? Was it the thing that has no reason to work? Or was there something else going on there, which kind of leads into why we use things like controls and we try to make our controls and other sort of comparison uh, interventions to be similar. So something like using or treating or studying, sorry, the um, ketamine is difficult to do because you have to, if you, if you take ketamine, you, you know you took ketamine. If you took something that wasn't ketamine and you were in that trial and you were told you may or may not be getting ketamine in this trial and nothing happens to you, you know you didn't get the treatment. So your interpretation of what might have happened or your expectation of a treatment effect is not going to be there. And so it becomes much more difficult. There are some interestingly nuanced approaches to handling that that, that are just now coming out. Um, that if you want to know more, we can discuss, but, um, that's just another sort of important nuance about clinical trials, about overcoming the biological plausibility, but also trying to isolate the effect of the thing that you're studying to prove that it's actually what's working. So back to hydroxychloroquine. So what really, um, caught people's eye or ear or both, was this initial study that um, was done in Europe where they had multiple people in this trial. There was about 20 getting the treatment and 16 controls. Six of those in the study were, quote, lost to follow-up, meaning they didn't finish the study. Um, these were all people who got sicker, some of them needing to go to the ICU. Not all of the patients who were in the study were diagnosed by the RT-PCR test that we use as right now the standard of testing um, or confirming. And then some of the patients also got azithromycin. So you can kind of see that here... Um, it's a it's a small study, and it's also very unclear um, that they were studying even um, the right sick people, and then they threw out anybody who didn't get better in their study. So whatever effect that they might have seen, and is is kind of null because we don't know what really happened. It's like if you have a classroom, and you're looking at all of the students and seeing how they're doing. In, in one class, and then you only look at the 10 kids who got A pluses, you really don't know how good the teacher is because what if everybody else in this class of 30 um, stopped going or were murdered by the teacher? Um, I don't know, weird example, but let's go with it. So, so that study um, kind of sucked, um, frankly, bad quality. So, he tried to step it up with a bigger study, 80 patients in his second study. Three 
three out of the 80 were in a dedicated COVID unit, the rest of them um, somewhere else in the hospital. They were split into two different groups. There were some that showed upper respiratory symptoms, um, cough, sneeze, runny nose, lower respiratory symptoms, cough, sneeze. Um, 4% of the patients in this study were actually asymptomatic. Only 15% of the patients in the study had a fever at all. That's, that's a pretty substantial uh, number to look at there. And it's important to think about another element of clinical trials here because when you want to look at a representative sample uh, for a study to, to, to show how realistic and applicable it is to real life, you want to have the population in the trial to be as close to real life as possible. So having only 15% of your patients having fever when 82 to 87% of all cases that we know of have fever, it seems like a very strange population of patients to be evaluating for the efficacy of your treatment. You're kind of saying, I don't know how sick these people are, and they don't seem to really, there's something unique about them. It may or may not have anything to do with the treatment that we're studying, but there's something good about whatever is going on for them. Um, so that, that, that alone, in, in my opinion, I think was, was made it poor quality. The other issue is the lack of um, intention to treat analysis. So these um, folks in both of their studies missed the boat on the what we call intention to treat. And what that is, is it takes, when you split your patient populations into who's getting the treatment and who's not, you follow them for a certain amount of time and you measure X, Y, and Z. And then at the end of it, you have all of your data. Now, what they were doing was just analyzing the people who stayed in the trial from start to finish. It, you, so you lose anyone who dies, got sicker, disappeared, left the hospital, um, or refused the treatment at some point. So there's a whole lot of people who might have been missed um, who were initially at the beginning of the study. And, you know, the, the, real, the reality of, of doing medicine um, is that people can forget to take their medications. They can stop taking their medications because they don't like them. They can um, take their medications incorrectly. Um, maybe they have to ration the medications because the healthcare system is a nightmare for them and they aren't able to afford their medications to take every day, so they take it every other day, doing the best that they can. Um, and so when you have a trial come out that only looks at the star pupils of the study population, um, it's really not giving us a real-world um, perspective on what really happened in their trial. In addition, it's a relatively small trial, but um, just the, the, the patient population alone kind of tells you that there's not... It's, it's not going to be the most informative clinical trial. Next thing I wanted to get into is remdesivir. So this is an antiviral medication. So this actually works directly on the virus itself. This was developed by Gilead, and it was initially 
tested as a hepatitis C virus treatment back in 2009, along with two other compounds that Gilead had synthesized. They later tested it to treat Ebola back in 2018. Unfortunately, both of those situations, it failed to treat. So the, but the underlying mechanism, the way that it works is that it blocks what's called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, as well as another compound called viral exoribonuclease, which is what ends the replication of the RNA. But so if you can block the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase that duplicates the RNA, you stop the duplication of the genetic material in the virus. A study in February 2020 showed that the mechanism of action there works on coronavirus, and it works even better than the in vitro studies that they did for Ebola. So they tried, they'd gotten some positive response from remdesivir in, Ebola, in the treating Ebola virus, but it was only kind of in the petri dish situation and not working in human studies. They did it again, or tried it again here with coronavirus, and, they're, and it seems like they're getting much better results. So now they're on to the big trial, including hospitals in Chicago. It's also included in what's called the Discovery Trial. They had announced this in March um, on the 22nd. They're using um, multiple trials all over Europe that are there are four treatment arms, some with remdesivir, some with a combination of the other two medications Gilead made called lopinavir and ritonavir, plus or minus interferon beta that seems to have some antiviral activity, and then hydroxychloroquine. They have the um, caveat that if things are going badly for the patients in any of those study arms, that they will terminate that part of the study early and give them standard of care and or con maybe consider enrolling them into a different treatment arm. Um, again, the um, back to the interferon beta part, this was demonstrated to be effective on the in vitro studies, so the cell studies. Um, there's a lot of studies going on, but there's not a lot of data reported, and so it's difficult to say kind of what's been going on. I'm skeptical of remdesivir only because it's failed for two different types of viruses. On the other hand, um, it, it could be potentially useful. Um, it's, it's again, it's shown that it's got biological plausibility, um, so it, only time will tell what's going to happen. But the clinical trials are up and running, one of them for almost a month now, so I think we should be getting data reports pretty soon. So we'll keep an eye out for that. Next up, I wanted to talk about um, high-dose vitamin C um, and also talk about an important topic um, that we often refer to in medicine called the natural history of disease. Um, especially when it comes to infectious diseases, what the natural history would refer to is, say you get a, you get a common cold. A common cold, you pick it up, a few days later, you start to get sick. 
about 10 days later, you've recovered. And then up to several weeks later, you may have a, what we'd call a post-viral cough. So that's the natural history of the disease. This is important context for anytime anyone tells you about a treatment that they started when they got a cold or sort of like some non-diagnosed illness, almost always viral. It's the most common cause. So um, maybe they started eating oranges on day 10 or day 9 even. They're still kind of feeling shitty and they decided, I just want to start eating oranges. They start eating oranges. Next day they start feeling better and they're like, wow, I feel great. Um, I'm so glad I started eating oranges and ignoring the natural history of the disease. Another um, example would be that same person starts eating oranges on day two. They still have 10 days of illness and then the post-viral cough. However, they still feel like there's something about eating oranges that made them feel better, which is, you know, it's a reasonable cognitive trap that you can put yourself in. But I I think um, when you when you put it in some context that it, it makes a lot less sense um, that that thing specifically did anything. Um, the, the IV vitamin C um, issue, they, um, they talk about, uh, there was a review that discussed both IV vitamin C and ozone um, as potential treatments. What I find interesting and I think is also important to know is that review articles um, are, are interesting introductions to topics. The problem with review articles is that they, they do not um, require or they don't necessarily have to face scientific rigors of something like a systematic review where you have to essentially qualify the quality of the data that you're discussing. A review is essentially more like a summary of what we know about a topic. And so this review is a great example of uh, not the they're lacking scientific rigor. So they um, the authors initially cite Linus Pauling as having been an advocate for vitamin C. Um, Linus Pauling as an advocate for vitamin C is interesting because it people often cite how important Linus Pauling was to the world of infectious diseases and how he later decided that vitamin C fixes everything without any real data to support his theory. And it's a, it's a topic we can get into on a future episode. Um, it's been discussed pretty well elsewhere, but I'm happy to get into it. Um, but they, in this article, they, they invoke the great line as Pauling and then cite no evidence at all um, into how it works or why it would work they just make statements and then have no citations. So generally when, when say, I'm writing an article or working on a journal article, anytime I make a statement um, that is not based on what I know from what I've been doing in my work, but it's a statement of fact that I, I know from some other source, I have to cite that source. And that source can be then looked at to see, does that prove their point, um, or how does that actually relate to the thing that they're discussing? So when you don't do that at all, um, you're really just making things up. But if you say it with authority, 
it can be read with authority. So if you say IV vitamin C, as touted by the great Linus Pauling, has, has worked for decades, millennia, and is the best pro-inflammatory drug we have, and we should use it for everybody, and it's been shown to do that, let's use it, period, no citation. You might sound like you know what you're talking about, but you have no idea what you're talking about, or at least you haven't proven you know what you're talking about. They claim that it seems to somehow increase pro-inflammatory cytokines, which is interesting because it's also touted as an antioxidant, which often interferes with the function of some inflammatory cytokines. But they say because it does these interesting things that it must, must be useful. Really not a lot of scientific rigor in this opinion. Um, Again, the, the merits of vitamin C for infectious disease in general um, can be discussed in, in a future episode if you're interested, but there's other people who have talked about it, such as Dr. Mark Chrislip in a podcast he published years ago. Another interesting um, treatment is, is ozone, ozone also known as O3, um, some of us remember from the ozone layer. Um, the idea of ozone is that it um, is used to sterilize things because it is extremely toxic. The interesting part in this review article I was reading that discussed vitamin C and ozone, they say, quote, despite sufficient evidence for its use in medicine, and then cite nothing that shows sufficient evidence makes me curious. And they're later discussing how there's sufficient evidence. And then they cite a paper about how ozone is used to sterilize water. So a lot of things can sterilize water that can kill you and not treat an infection. It's very odd that the authors of this article, who I will not name shame, um, would do something so bold as to say, oh yeah, um, no, this totally works. Um, there's so much evidence for it. And, uh, you know, like, check out this paper. It can sterilize water. And then that's it. Okay. So um, some background on ozone's use. Um, there was a trial of, of using it to, um, to treat hepatitis B they uh the way that they do it is they they take out the patient's blood take out small amounts of the patient's blood and treat it with a diluted amount of ozone and then reintroduce the blood and they can do this x number of times but it's sort of this process of of blood removal and treatment um which kind of makes it a sounds like an arduous process I'd love to look more into like what it actually looks like since there are health spas that are doing this. Um, what, what I found just as a point about this health spa thing, the, uh, the, a lot of the review articles that are saying sufficient evidence and then not citing sources, they always say ozone is a great treatment and because it's an elemental compound that can't be easily copyrighted, there's no interest in the 
FDA or modern medicine to pursue it as a treatment because you can't make money off of it. Um, while there is some truth to that, they also seem to imply that because the FDA doesn't want to make money off of it means that ozone probably is somehow effective, but it's a big secret that we are trying to hide. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a very, um, there's a lot of, um, logical problems with the, uh, the process that they take in on their approach of making arguments, um, talking about the man getting them down, um, a little silly, especially when, if there's no money to be made in the treatment, health spas that are like money factories for doctors who are tired of doing regular medicine, um, are do, if, if they're doing the ozone treatments, then there's got to be something to the money in doing them. So the, there was a trial where they were trying to treat hepatitis B, and they, the, the review article that discussed vitamin C and ozone cites it as, a, as, as proof that it was a, an effective hepatitis B trial. So what they did was they were testing patients for the hepatitis surface antigen, the, and if they had the surface antibody, they were ruled out. The, having the surface antigen in your system could have gotten into your system from a lot of places. The assumption here is that it would have gotten fr from having a hepatitis B infection. However, you generally want to use the hepatitis envelope antigen, which is the sign of an active and infectious person with a hepatitis B infection. So the fact that they only looked at the surface antigen um, and no envelope antigen was odd. They don't test for any other antibodies or any other antigens in this patient population. And they also looked at determining a, the patients having a viral load between 10,000 and 20,000. Now, the definition of an active hepatitis inf infection, typically you see patients with over 20,000 in their viral load. So the fact that they are including people who don't have what we use as the standard for active infection and we, they don't have the viral load of what we would call um, an active infection, then there's some major oversights here in the quality of the study. The other thing that they don't do in this trial is they don't specify the population at all. They just say they don't have surface antibody, they do have sur surface antigen, and they have a irrelevant, relatively speaking, they have a low viral load. They don't tell you how old they were, where they're from, what their uh, health status is, if they have any co-occurring disorders or diseases, if they've gotten the hepatitis vaccine. They don't even say if these people have been vaccinated or not. Um, you can see, um, generally, if they have a proper immune response, you would see the anti antibody to the surface of hepatitis B. Um, but maybe they just recently got it. I don't know. They, they just don't tell you enough about these patients. So the, um, so the trial 
was like, oh yeah, everybody who got the ozone treatment, even though they didn't fit the usual diagnostic criteria, they all got better, therefore ozone is good. Um, they also, there was another study that compared ozone as a way to disinfect um, soiled blankets with hepatitis. And the results came back that ozone was a less effective treatment than some of the other um, chemicals that we would use to sanitize something that had um, blood and other um, fluids from somebody with a hepatitis B infection. There was also another case um, that was touted by uh, this doctor who is a big, a big proponent for ozone, where he felt like he had cured at least one person of Ebola during an Ebola outbreak years ago. So the story is the patient had a needle stick that, meaning they got poked by a needle that had also poked a patient who had an active Ebola infection. Two days after the patient had this needle stick, they got a fever, they had decreased appetite, abdominal distress, fatigue, kind of classic kind of early onset symptoms of Ebola. However, the average onset of, of the illness is 8 to 10 days, so strange that she would develop symptoms two days after the needle stick, which, as far as we know, was the only time that this person was exposed to have gotten the infection. So weird timeline there. And then the average um, the average sort of length of illness can go up to three weeks. Um, the patient was never actually tested for Ebola, and after they'd gotten the ozone treatment, they got better quickly. So... Really curious to see if that person ever actually had Ebola, and and odd that the person in any situation, if you get a needle stick and there's a concern, especially about a specific illness, the first thing you do is get tested for the illness. So the fact that this person got a needle stick from a patient with Ebola and then never had a confirmed diagnosis of Ebola in their own system also makes this whole case very concerning that maybe the guy is not seeing what he thinks he's seeing. So the reason why ozone relates to corona is that the coronavirus um, at a molecular level is high in an amino acid called cysteine. Cysteine is unique because it has these sulfhydryl groups that are a sulfur element and attached to a hydrogen the sulfur is then attached to a carbon somewhere along in the structure. These cysteine groups um, are specifically um, used by the coronavirus to bind to the host cells that allow for its entry. It's shown that when you introduce ozone, it modifies the sulfhydryl group by oxidizing it, and then the sulfhydryl group, now that it's oxidized, is unable to attach to the host cells, leaving it around for the immune system to clean up. However, um, this may be true. The current status is that there's no, no clinical trials to date. So as of now, 
there's that. So I think that's, uh, I think it's a good place to to stop for now. We've talked about a lot of huge things, um, talked about some of the merits of any clinical trial, um, some of the mechanisms of the current treatments, including hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir. Um, you know what, let's do one more. Um, I spent enough time on this that we should get into it. Um, it's a more, it's a, an interesting one because people are starting to talk about it a little bit. It's, it's another medicine that's called ivermectin. Ivermectin is a anti, uh, anti-helminth medis- medication. It was discovered in 1970. Uh, it was actually found in the soil near a golf course. Um, the Japanese scientists who found it um, found that bacteria produce it to destroy um, nearby mites and things of that nature. Um, it seems to work by blocking these ion channels um, that are having glutamate um, or that are, um, yeah, they bind glutamate and then allow ions to travel, uh, specifically chloride. Um, the nice thing about ivermectin has been around long enough that it's about 12 cents for a ivermectin treatment course. Um, the, the bacteria, just to circle back, um, that makes it is a, um, is a subgroup called streptomyces. They make these um, compounds called avermectin. So ivermectin is sort of within that group. The studies showed that um, not only is it used to be able to kill mites and lice and tick infections, um, they seem to find that it can work on a uh, viral replication mechanism. There's a subgroup of viruses called flaviviruses, and they use a compound called RNA helicase in part of its reproduction process. And ivermectin has been shown to inhibit RNA helicase. And so that, again, no viral replication. That means then we're good to go. Immune system can clear it out. The uh, cellular study in April showed that, that possibly ivermectin can decrease replication of coronavirus, but it, again, the mechanism's not really clear. They have proposed some ideas, but if it's, in, if it's inhibiting something, it can't be RNA helicase because coronavirus has no RNA helicase. So you're not inhibiting that. So they have, there's, there's some proposed mechanisms for why ivermectin might work. Um, it's relatively cheap, um, and it's not very commonly used. Um, but this, is not without side effects. Out of all the treatments with side effects, though, that we would be concerned about is hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Azithromycin is a antibiotic from the greater class of antibiotics called macrolides. All macrolides, including azithromycin, can cause an amount of what's called QT prolongation, which is a part of the EKG that shows the electrical um, activity in your heart. So prolonging the QT, which is essentially the start to finish of the electrical wave 
that people get tattoos of inaccurately all the time, um, those um, can get prolonged. And when you decrease the regular electrical function, you can get into potentially fatal arrhythmias. Hydroxychloroquine can also prolong the QT. So you have to, if you convince yourself that you need to treat somebody with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, you also have to convince yourself that that person's heart can handle it. Um, so the, so all of these things are not without potential um, downsides. I think the antivirals generally um, don't have very well established from my reading um, side effects as they haven't had enough time in human studies, but I will try to get better, more detailed information about the potential side effects of those things. Um, some, some generally people just kind of feel kind of crappy, sometimes can in interfere with kidney function, um, but that's not specific to something like remdesivir that we talked about earlier. Okay, I think this, this is a good place to stop. Um, I know I just said that earlier, but I, I mean it this time. Um, I think uh, next time what I want to get into is going to be more about like the diagnostics, um, things like the, um, the antibody tests that are going around now that you can get in certain places um, and then compare that to the PCR test that they are using. Then discuss other ways of diagnosing. Um, we can also talk about some of the public health aspects and answer some of your questions. Um, ideally, the next episode would come out either Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, and um, depending on the response, etc. So please um, subscribe to the podcast, write a review, get me a million stars, send me all the money you have. Um, I'm starting to run out of the money from lying about the cure for cancer, so help me out. All right, I've been Dr. Greg, and this has been What I Can Say.